Um, my mom tells stories of me out there in a playpen before I could walk. And every weekend of my life, my dad would get home from work. She would already have the boat ready to go and we'd spend the whole weekend out there. From the river to the valley to the sea. All the places, all the people that you Welcome to the Mississippi Valley Traveler Podcast. I'm Dean Klinkenberg, and I've been exploring the deep history and rich culture of the people and places along America's greatest river, the Mississippi, since 2007. Join me as I go deep into the characters and places along the river, and occasionally wander into other stories from the Midwest and other rivers. Read the episode show notes and get more information on the Mississippi at MississippiValleyTraveler.com. Let's get going. Welcome to episode 24 of the Mississippi Valley Traveler podcast. In this episode, we travel deep into the Louisiana swamp with Jessica Golly. In May, John and I were down in the New Orleans and uh, we took a, a tour uh, up uh, about 45 minutes northeast of uh, the city of the Honey Island Swamp with Jessica's company, which is the Honey Island Kayak Tours. She grew up with the swamp, uh, and she's an enthusiastic and knowledgeable guide. Uh, she and her husband lead tours through that part of the swamp all year, uh, and it's just a fantastic experience. Uh, so in this interview, we talk about her experiences growing up in the swamp, some of the plant and animal life uh, that uh, call the swamps home, getting over our fears of swamps, which is a big issue for a lot of us, uh, some of the seasonal changes and uh, the native foods that you that uh, she's been able to forage from the swamps. And then we'll talk a little bit about what uh, you have to do if you want to do a tour of the swamp and uh, a couple of ideas if you just want to kayak or paddle around one of the Louisiana swamps on your own. And we have a little discussion about the joys of kayaking and even swimming in areas where alligators are common. I will post links in the show notes to her company with some information about how you can book your own tour if you're interested. I highly recommend it. I've done a couple of other swamp tours in the area. I found the Honey Island Swamp Tour to be the most interesting and the, and the most fun of them all. So I highly recommend it. So you can find those show notes at MississippiValleyTraveler.com slash podcast, where you can also find out how to support the show. You can join my Patreon community. A shout out to all of, the, all of you who continue to show me some love through Patreon. Or you can just buy me a coffee and support my caffeine habit. Again, you can go to MississippiValleyTraveler.com slash podcast to find out how to do that. Your support keeps this podcast going. And now, on to the interview. Jessica Golly is uh, owner of the Honey Island Kayak Tours, based uh, just uh, northeast of uh, New Orleans. Uh, she is an excellent tour guide and, uh, and I know has a personal connection to the swamps that she takes people through. Welcome to the podcast, Jessica. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure to have you here today. You know, it feels like just yesterday that uh, John and I were out in a kayak with you paddling around in the Honey Island Swamp. Uh, uh, and I just I wanted to say up front how much you know we both really enjoyed that tour, uh, and I, I hope we'll talk a little bit about that uh, uh, during our conversation some today as well. 
But what I thought we'd start is, yeah, I remember you mentioning during our tour that you had a very personal connection with that area. Uh, and would you mind just kind of telling us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I grew up in the area. I'm a lifelong resident, generations in from the Honey Island Swamp. Um, basically spent my whole life out there from the time that I, before I could walk until now, which has been 40 years. Goodness. So what were your, some of the childhood experiences like then? Like, did your parents just throw you in a boat and say, go out and explore? Or like... <laughs> Yeah, pretty much at a certain age, it became that way. Um, my mom tells stories of me out there in a playpen before I could walk. And every weekend of my life, my dad would get home from work. She would already have the boat ready to go. And we'd spend the whole weekend out there. They let me hydro slide, which is like a boogie board behind a boat. And then I got old enough. My best friend lived on a houseboat. And I spent most of my time out there with her exploring the swamp in a piro. Wow. Now, okay, so for, so for those of us who, uh, who are not in uh, Louisiana, can you explain what you mean by a P-Row? Yeah, so the best way that I can describe it is kind of like a Cajun canoe. So it's a small little boat, only sits about an inch out of the water. And I can tell you now that I've learned how to kayak, P-Rowing is not easy. Does it usually have a motor or not? No motor, and it's a single blade paddle. All right. All right. So it's kind of like a canoe, but is it maybe a little flatter bottom? It's a flat bottom and the front and the back both come to points generally. All right. Uh, and that is that something you think that was developed kind of uh, to specifically to paddle around the waterways of Louisiana and some of the swamps or, you know, much about that background? You know, I wish I could tell you definitively, um, but I de definitely don't know that answer. That's all right. Um Tell me, what is it that you like so much about the swamps when you were growing up? What were some of the things that stood out to you from your memories of spending time in the swamps? Just how beautiful it is and how vast it is. You could just explore a different place every day and every place looks different from it, the other. Plus, we have the legend of the Honey Island Swamp Monster. Um, so that was pretty fun as a kid, spooking yourself out, going into places looking for it. That was always an adventure. Every place has a monster story, doesn't it? The, it does. What, what, was there something like you remember, like what people said the Honey Island Swamp Monster monster was like? Like, were there particular descriptions that were consistent? Or yeah, I've heard ape-like and tall. I've always known it as a rougarou, which is French for wolfman, so a basic eight-foot-tall wolfman. And so it was kind of the legend to keep us from exploring too far at nighttime. But being the explorative kid that I was, I didn't quite listen to all that. I was out <laughs> looking for it instead. Was it a monster that came out mostly at night then? or Mostly at night, yes. Yeah. So really, it did serve that purpose of trying to scare the kids enough to keep you from going around exploring um, after the sun went down, I guess. Yeah. Um, did you have any, like, are there any, like, uh, great escape stories from your youth when you were out there? Like, times when you got yourself in a bad spot that you had to figure out a way around? or Not so much. Uh, the one time for the Swamp Monster story, we were in a place that we were not allowed to go. Um, but we had no supervision. So we went there looking for the Swamp Monster. And we found its footprints across the sand. So we freaked out, paddled home faster than I have ever paddled in my life and didn't know how to tell our parents. Eventually, we told our parents and they told us that they put the, put the footprints out there to scare other people off. <laughs> and it worked with their own kids then. Yeah. 
I, I don't think we ever went back to that spot. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit about the Honey Island Swamp in particular, because I remember your description of that was very vivid. It's kind of a unique uh, ecological area. Yeah, so the Honey Island itself is about 70,000 acres. It has the highest biodiversity of flora and fauna out of any swamp. So there's a lot to explore and it's very confusing. There are several waterways within the Honey Island Swamp. So you really have to be from here to understand that. But most of it was lumbered back in the 1800s for the cypress trees. They used the wood for building materials. So what's left behind is a lot of new growth, about 70 year old trees, but certain areas in the swamp was not harvested. So we have 400 plus year old trees that are 18 plus feet in circumference and, and super beautiful. They have a root system called cypress knees that comes up out of the ground. So like stalagmites coming up almost, mm -hmm. and people see different images in them like faces, I always think of the little mermaid, Ursula's poor, unfortunate souls coming up out of the ground. Some of them are eight, 12 feet tall. So it's it's a pretty unique ecosystem. And is it, it's kind of um, um, at one end of the Pearl River, is that right? Yeah, the Honey Island's basically in the Pearl River Delta. Uh, the Pearl River north of here splits into two, the east and the west, and the Honey Island's everything in between those two river systems. Mm-hmm. And there are quite a few remaining swamps uh, in South Louisiana. And uh, what do you think makes the Honey Island Swamp uh, different from uh, Barataria or the around Manchac Lake or some of those other places? Yeah. So where we are, we have not had any problems with saltwater encroachment. Saltwater does do damage to cypress swamps. They can't handle the salinity. And then certain areas that we go into weren't logged as heavily, like say Manshack, there's a lot of shipping or man-made canals that they put in during the lumber industry. Cypress wood floats, so they would cut them down, drop them in the water, so they would make these straight shots to get where they needed them to be. The Honey Island, um, the lumber mill was on the east-hand side, and so they would harvest and create these little ditches to get from the west to the east, but they weren't huge canals. And so the Honey Island to me is more condensed and still has a lot of more old growth. All right. Is there a difference um, in the vegetation or the plant or the animal life in the in Honey Island compared to some of the other swamps now? I'm going to say it's pretty, pretty typically the same. Um, certain areas of the Honey Island. So let me say it this way. The Honey Island is basically a floodplain. So our water levels can rise and fall 12 feet in three days. So this leads to us not getting a lot of the invasive species that the other swamps do. The hyacinth can't really take foothold. We don't really have the nutria in certain places of the Honey Islands because the grasses can't grow that they eat. We're also dealing with an invasive snail called an apple snail. And I think that they're not in certain places of the Honey Island because of how drastically those water levels change. So ours are more like more native species. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to remember in my head now, is there a geography of that area? Is there, um, is there more of a defined valley for the Pearl River through there that helps you know, a funnel 
uh, water when it rains more into a smaller area than other parts of Louisiana where it might just spread out? Or Yeah, so the Pearl River drains basically where it drains into Lake Bourne, but that's where Lake Pontchartrain meets Lake Bourne meets the Gulf of Mexico. So it's a huge body of water that it has areas to drain into. And it doesn't really uh, settle on, um, I guess, the outside of the watershed like other areas. Mm -hmm. All right. So tell me a little bit then about how you got started doing tours through the uh, through the swamp. Yeah, so I kind of fell in it. Before this, I was a medical technician in the emergency room. Driving down the road one day, I saw a sign that said kayak tour. So I called them and asked them if I could be a guide and was pretty much hired on the spot and eventually decided that I really wanted to do my own thing. I wanted to make it super um, environmentally educational. I wanted to bring attention to the area. I also host trash cleanups on the Pearl River. So I wanted to tie in all the conservation work that I do with running my own uh, guide business. Excellent. Um, and you do that very well. So you basically then kind of called upon uh, your childhood experiences growing up there, but then you must have also kind of been, you taught yourself a lot about the ecology of that area uh, to do the tours. Yeah, so it all kind of stems from, well, my passion for it. I always love the area, but it stems from in 2011, we experienced a fish kill on the river, a paper mill north of here dumped a bunch of chemicals in the water, which is basically called black liquor. It's the pulp byproduct of making paper, and they released it into the waterway all at once. And so for five days, I was just watching our river die, uh, all of the fish, all of the mussels, and the water was like black tar. Anything that couldn't get out to get oxygen was dead. And so that just kind of devastated my heart. From there, we started a grassroots conservation program. And I wanted my part to be cleaning up the trash on the river. And it just kind of all spiraled uphill from there. Mm -hmm. Well, I had, that's terrible. So that was uh, 2011, you said? Yeah. The and how long did it take the river to, to bounce back after that? Um, so that happened in August when our water is really, really low. So that didn't help because it was kind of already stagnant at the time. And they came they basically waited for the rain to come in to wash everything out, but they did pay locals to come in and clean up all the dead fish. Yeah. I don't know the exact time it took for them hiring people to go out in motorboats and clean up, but I think it was about a week to two weeks. Wow. Uh, and, but it must've taken a while for the fish to repopulate and for the, you know, other animals to kind of come back and, yeah, I do believe they did some restocking, but for me, I'm kind of a mussel nerd. I love our freshwater mussels, and they were completely devastated. There was a study done 20 years ago where they had found 23 species of mussels, and they did the same study after the fish kill, and they had only found 19 species after that. So some just had no chance to bounce back at all. Right, right. Well, let's talk a little bit more uh, about who lives in the swamp then, too. So let's go into a little bit of detail. Let, let's look under the water first. Like, what are some of the more common um, animals? Uh, let's start with those uh, that live underwater or fish. Or... Okay, yeah. So our fish, typical freshwater, catfish, bass, perch, 
We have gar, alligator gar, long nose gar. They're some of my favorite fish. They can live in fresh water, they can live in salt water, and they can use their stomach as a lung so they can gulp oxygen. So that makes them pretty hardy. So during the fish kill, out of the millions of dead fish we found, we actually didn't find one dead gar because they were able to come out of the water and get oxygen, which is pretty fascinating to me. Wow. Then we have 30 plus species of turtles. We have 52 species of snakes. We have deer, pig, armadillo, raccoon, possum, uh, turkey, bobcat. There are bear out there. I've never seen one myself, but I've seen video of them. So they're there. Uh, have you seen uh, the evidence of bear in the area? Like black bear, I think probably. I, I personally haven't seen any evidence, but there's an arboretum not far from us that posted a video of a baby bear trying to get in their garbage can. So they're pretty close by. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I, I remember uh, there's an area in, um, oh, I'm going to blank on the name now. There's a National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, north, what's that? Bogachitta? No, it's further north. It's north uh, west of Baton Rouge. Um, oh, okay. The Tensaw River uh, National yeah. Wildlife Refuge. Uh, apparently, there are a lot of black bear there, and they're fairly easy to spot uh, during certain times of the year. Okay, so, well, that's where I need to go then. Out of yeah. all of my travels with my husband the past 12 years, we still have yet to see a bear together. Well, there you go. I, what <laughs> I heard is that there are certain berries that uh, 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 are ripe in maybe August or so that are kind of along this road, the Wilderness Drive. And it's okay. pretty, that's a good time of year, apparently, to spot them. So I get to offer you a tip. That's a rarity, you know. No, I love it. I'm excited <laughs> now. Something to do in the hot summer. Right. All right. Um, so that's a lot of the different animal life. And, of course, it attracts, the swamps attract a lot of birds. What are some of the uh, more common birds that you see day to day? Lots of shorebirds, wading birds, birds, all of the heron species. Louisiana is home to every species of heron. We see egrets pretty often. Now we're starting to see osprey pretty often, specifically on my kayak route. They're all over the place. And we have started to get the bald eagle population back within the past 10 years. So that's pretty exciting to see them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I remember we saw the uh, we saw some osprey when uh, we went on the tour with you back this spring. So. Yeah, and then we have some birds that are endemic to our area, like the prothonotary warbler. They're these tiny little yellow birds. We call them swamp canaries because it's easier to say, but it's pretty <laughs> exciting to see them. We're home to the Mississippi kite, which is another unique bird to the area. And then also the swallowtail kites, which are really fascinating birds that we've only really been studying or observing since the late 1980s. And we've done, our conservationists have done a lot of work to bring the population back. So we're starting to see them pretty regularly now. Hey, Dean Klinkenberg here, interrupting myself. Just wanted to remind you that if you'd like to know more about the Mississippi River, check out my books. I write the Mississippi Valley Traveler guidebooks for people who want to get to know the river better. I also write the Frank Dodge Mystery Series set in, set in places along the Mississippi. Read those books to find out how many different ways my protagonist, Frank Dodge, can get into trouble. My newest book, Mississippi River Mayhem, details some of the disasters and tragedies that happened along Old Man River. Find any of them wherever books are sold. So then in terms of uh, the plant life, um, 
Uh, I know like the cypress and tupelo trees are very well adapted for swamp life. Like what else might people see paddling around? As far as the trees go, cypress and tupelo are our basic wetland trees, but we also have water elm out there. We have white ash. We have mayhaw, which is a hawthorn tree that produces an edible crab apple that we make jelly and jam and wine out of. Lots of edibles out there. If you come in August, we can eat a muscadine grape, which makes amazing wine. Mm, so those grow wild out there, huh? Yeah, everything grows wild out there. If you know <laughs> what you're looking for, the swamp is great for foraging. Absolutely. Uh, I, muscadine grapes are one of those things that I've read a lot about, like the, I've, the, that I've come across the name a lot, but I don't think I could pick one out of a lineup. Yeah, so they're really fascinating. So all grapes have 19 pairs of chromosomes, but the muscadine has an extra pair, which allows it this harder outer shell. So it protects it growing in the summer heat. So it pretty much thrives out here and you can eat it like a regular grape, but I like to peel the shell off, pop the flesh in my mouth and then chew on the shell afterwards because it's got a ton of antioxidants. Hmm. So, so I guess some of those are used for, um, those can be used for jams or wines as well then. Yeah, jams and wines. When we were younger, we would collect as much as we could and pop them in the freezer so we could have summertime snacks. And to to me, or I've heard it's an acquired taste. I love them, but they taste like great flavor, but in a good way. Huh. So I, I'm I'm detecting that they have a hint of something else too, though. It's not just like the standard grapes we're used to at the grocery store, but uh, no, uniquely their own. Yeah. All right. Uh and so what time of year again is that when they would generally be ripe? August. In August. So I've got to come back in August then. Oh, yeah. I just found a patch right where we launch. I'm watching it because it's going to be ready. <laughs> all right. Uh, so, all right. So what else is out there that you could harvest that you could eat? If you're foraging around, are there other um, plants that uh, offer foraging opportunities? Yeah, we have wild onion. We have y- yopon, yopon holly, however you want to pronounce it. It's a holly tree that you can make tea out of the leaves. It's the only naturally caffeinated plant in North America. Sometimes it's called the Civil War tea because they couldn't get coffee. So they would drink their Yopon Holly. And it definitely has its own unique flavor. I really love it. But only if you drink unsweet tea, because if you add a sweetener to it, it takes away its natural flavor. Hmm. Um, And then I have found oyster mushrooms, chanterelles, The list goes on and on. We have wild pecan out there. We have native persimmon. There's elderberry. There's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Would you like if you're just a person traveling through, would you find any of those foods available in markets or restaurants or? Not really. No, that's pretty much foraging stuff. Muscadines you can buy in markets, but I haven't actually found them in markets in Louisiana. It's in other states. (laughs) Uh, huh, all right. Well, so when uh, yeah, when people come out then for kayak tours, so you operate tours uh, all all year? So, yeah, year round. Um, and they're available most days of the week? Yeah, we're open seven days a week. During the warmer times, we have three times a day. And during the winter, we do once a day at the warmest spot of the day. And if I remember right, it's about... 30 to 40 minutes from the French Quarter from New Orleans? 
about I say 45 minutes All to right. be safe. So and uh, at this point, it's probably best if people just planned on finding their way out there. You provide spot on directions. So generally people get out there on their own. Yeah, they get out on their own. We do provide transportation. Um, you just have to call us and let us know. We're not a big company. It's pretty much me, my husband, and some locals that do everything. So we're not quite set up for transportation, but we will come pick you up. Absolutely. And so what are the priorities for you when you take people out? Like, What, what are you hoping that they come away with? I guess just the love for the environment. It's such a unique ecosystem. Most of Louisiana's wetlands were lost due to us over harvesting them. And now with saltwater encroachment, we're just, our land's going away at a very quick rate. But where we kayak was never harvested, it has no salt water. It's the most pristine wetland ecosystem that I have been in that is still natural. So I just want people to like experience this unique piece of land that's actually still left. And so I hope that they just find a love for that. And maybe if they're not already conservationists, find a love for conservation for their particular area and can go home and start protecting their area. Do you think we've been too hard on swamps? I mean, we tend to use the idea, we tend to see the the concept of a swamp as a, as something negative. Yeah, you know, we use it to describe um, you know, the political world that we disdain or we don't like. So what can we do to turn this around so people have a different understanding, a different association with swamps? That's a really good question. And I really don't know how to answer that other than getting people out there and showing them what it is so they can find their own appreciation. If you have never seen one, you really don't know what it is. Yeah. So do you think like part of the problem is that people associated it with this darkness, this impenetrable wilderness that scared people? Yeah, uh, there's a lot of fear probably of what was there, right? Plus, there is even among locals. I don't understand. Like, I can see how people are scared. There's alligators out there. There's snakes. You know, there's predators out there, but they're not really dangerous as long as you just leave them alone. So we also have this idea of the Hollywood swamp. It's spooky. It's scary. And so I get guests out there that are expecting to be terrified and they get out there and they're like, oh my gosh, this is so beautiful. What was I scared of? And yet we just have this misconception of what a swamp really is. Absolutely. It's, that is a beautiful stretch. I, I did one other kayak tour as last year in a different swamp that was more, I think that had been more damaged by hurricanes and salt intrusion and then logging and the Honey Island Swamp. It just, it felt more dense. The canopy was thicker. The light, it felt more lush. Uh, it's just an incredibly beautiful uh, area. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I just, I've always appreciated it so much. It's uniquely their, its own and particularly where we kayak, only 10% of wetlands left in Louisiana look like where we are. So it's oh. just this tiny little sliver of what everywhere else is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Right, what it used to be, yeah. Yeah. Um, so what is the, what's the experience like at different times of year? Yeah, I often get the question, what is my favorite time to be out there? And my answer is today because every season is different. I love the winter because it's the ghost swamp. It's dark and it's gray and it's black and there's no leaves on the trees and the Spanish moss just, uh, Spanish moss is like this 
gray hair hanging from the trees kind of looks like an old man's beard or something it's the same color as the trees and the sky so it's just a really unique experience to be out there at that time and then during the spring everything slowly starts to wake up first the mayhaw trees bloom so it's this white flower and it's the only color in the swamp and it almost looks like snowflakes everywhere and then from there in two weeks you know everything is going to slowly start to turn green but the swamp doesn't wake up in a week. It takes three months for it to reach its full potential green. So you're just slowly watching it become just this vibrant color. And then in the fall, sometimes we get fall colors, sometimes we don't. But it's unique at that time because that's when most of our wading birds are coming out. So we get to see a lot more species at that time. Um, yeah. And do you get... Uh, some migratory birds stopping through the area too at different times of year? Or? Um, we're kind of um, a little bit of an overpass for the migratory birds. They kind of skip over the coastal areas of the Honey Island Swamp to make their way towards Florida or Texas. But we get a lot of the wading birds. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have any orchids in there? We actually do have a very rare orchid. It's called a green fly orchid, and it's the only kind of its species that grows outside of Florida. And it's actually in bloom right now, so it's super unique to get to see it. Uh, it does randomly bloom throughout the year, but it is this tiny, tiny little green flower that's super unimpressive. But it's there and it's rare, so we love it. <laughs> All right. Is that in the area where you uh, where you take the tour groups through too? As well? Yeah. All right. Yeah, it's there. Oh, awesome. I don't know why, but I've kind of been on an orchid uh, binge the last couple of years, been really interested in them. And uh, they're amazingly diverse and they're all over the place. So, yeah, they're super fun. We just went down towards the Everglades a couple of weeks ago, and I was so excited to get to see different species um, and all of the bromeliads that are there, the different air plants. Mm hmm. So in the fall, where which trees are, if they're going to be any fall color, like where, where would the color typically come from? Which trees are? The river maples, um, they turn a beautiful red and orange color. If we have an early freeze, the cypress needles will turn a vibrant burnt orange that is absolutely beautiful. And that does happen every couple of years. Mm -hmm. uh, it must be quite a shock to folks when you, <laughs> you probably don't get much snow though, huh? No, not really. I would absolutely love to see snow in the swamp, but that hasn't happened here. <laughs> that would be awesome. Um, so backing up just a little bit, so you mentioned alligators. I think you know, you, during our tour, you mentioned that uh, that area really doesn't have very all that many resident alligators. Is, is that right? Yeah, we have a few in the area, not that many. Uh, we do have a couple of large alligators. Big alligators eat little alligators, so that's why we don't have that heavy of a population. And we don't hunt them in this area. So we have hunting season to take the big alligators out so the little ones can survive. And since we don't have that hunting in the area, we just have some big ones. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so most of the, most of those tours, then they probably most of the time you probably don't really catch a glimpse of the gators or it's it's not that common. I'm going to say it's not that common. This year has really been an off year for us. We haven't seen hardly any, uh, but we have been dealing with flood waters a lot longer than usual and alligators don't like the moving water so they kind of stay away from where we're at 
Um, but you sh- typically we do get to see them here and there throughout the year. I have to admit, like when I first thought about uh, kayaking through a swamp and being near alligators, it seemed like a fundamentally wrong thing to be in a kayak near an alligator. But what do you tell people about you know, that that fear? Yeah, so alligators are actually terrified of humans. When they're born, they're only about a foot long. So they're eaten by everything, birds, turtles, fish, other alligators. So naturally, anything about eight inches over the surface of the water, they're terrified of. So us just being in our kayaks, we're a predator to them. As long as you don't feed them, they keep their fear of humans. And so we swim in this water, our kids swim in this water. So we just do not interact with the alligators at all. You just kind of keep to your separate spaces and everybody's fine. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It still seems fundamentally foreign to me thinking about that. But we all have that, I guess, for the places where we live, where there are certain things we accept as part of our daily life that other people look at and think there's no way. Yeah, exactly. I don't, we, down in the Everglades, we wanted to see the crocodiles, but the idea of kayaking with a crocodile was a no-go for me. Yeah. Well, and as I understand, aren't crocodiles more aggressive anyway than alligators? That's the conception. Yes, they are aggressive and alligators are not. Uh, So, I mean, they do kayak tours down there. So somebody's got to be covering their insurance, but I don't (laughs) know if I would want to take the chance. (laughs) Well, so I know you lead kayak tours through that area. Um, I, people can just paddle on their own in a lot of these swamps as well, though, right? They don't need to be part of an organized tour. Correct. There are tons of areas that you can go in on your own. I just personally do not suggest the Honey Island without a guide because of how confusing it is. Where we are, there is no obvious trail. There's no markers to let you know where you need to be or where you need to go next. And so I feel like it's a pretty easy area to get lost in. But surrounding New Orleans, there are tons of places that you could go on your own. Yeah, and I think probably uh, most of those places, as you said, would be pretty easy to navigate through um, and to keep track of where you are. Probably the biggest risk is that you're just going to get lost and not be able to figure out how to get back to where you started. Exactly. Uh, Once I take people out there, they're like, how do you know where you're going? All of the trees look exactly the same. But to me, none of them look exactly the same. So that's how I navigate is unique looking trees. But I have actually found lost people on one of my tours one time. They had been lost for 24 hours. Um, So, yeah, (laughs) you've got to be really careful out there. (laughs) Uh, um, All right. Well, let's see. What else should we know about the swamps that we haven't talked about yet? It's just really beautiful if you're ever in the area in September and you want to get involved in the conservation of the area. We do a major trash cleanup that starts in Jackson, Mississippi, all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. It's spearheaded by Pearl Riverkeeper. And so we clean up roughly 30,000 pounds of trash every year. So if you want to get involved with us that way, we'd be happy to have you. Absolutely. Great. Uh, so you, you start up uh, up there and work your way south as a group or there are people working on different stretches or people working on different stretches. We do clean up about a 500 mile stretch. Generally, we have anywhere from 20 to 32 locations. Um, so you can pick the location nearest to you. Most of us uh, will feed you and give you a little after party after your time cleaning up on the water and 
If you want to donate, you can go to pearlriverkeeper.com and just become a member or do a one-time donation. And that helps us provide um, all of the cleaning supplies that we need. American Rivers um, does donate the trash bags for us. So we work strictly on donations. Mm -hmm. So what are the, some of the items that you uh, typically find on the cleanups? Um, so down where I am, the Pearl River is a huge recreational area and they do a lot of partying out there. So unfortunately, it's a lot of liquor bottles and beer cans. Uh, but historically, we find some pretty old trash. I found an ammonia bottle from 1907, an ink bottle from 1829. We do find, unfortunately, a lot of styrofoam, a lot of single day use, uh, people, fishermen throwing their bait boxes out of the their boat and then just we find refrigerators and deep freezers and toilets like there's no telling what we're going to find on any given cleanup right and you wonder how the heck those big items got out there but oh it drives me insane <laughs> <laughs> yeah the where I'm at in the Honey Island, we are the floodplain of the entire river system. Like I said, our water levels can change pretty drastically. So not only do we get all of the water down there, but we get all of the trash down there. And a lot of people don't realize when you're throwing your trash out your car window, it's going to go into a ditch, which drains into a water system, which leads to us having to pick it up. We need to take care of these places, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and there's not we, many places like this left. Exactly. As we've said over and over, like this, this particular area in Honey Island is uh is a rare remnant uh of uh um an old swamp that's uh, still in good shape that uh we really need to go to the extra effort to take care of. Absolutely. I think that's about all I've got for questions right now. What would be uh what's the best way for people to get in touch with you or follow what's going on with you? Yeah, we're Honey Island Kayak Tours. We have social media, so Facebook, Honey Island Kayak Tours, Instagram, at Honey Island Kayak. We do have a YouTube channel now where you can follow all of our fun shenanigans. It's Honey Island Kayak Tours on YouTube. Our website, HoneyIslandKayakTours.com. And then you can also give us a call, 504-517-3066. And uh, I know when uh, when I set this up, we were able to book tours online. It's very easy to to do it that way. So you know you can easily pick a time of day and a day that you want to go out there and uh, and book a tour at that at your preferred time. Yeah, you book online. You get a confirmation email from us that gives you detailed instructions on where to find us. You meet us there, and then we spend two to two and a half hours out in the swamp having fun and learning about the ecosystem. Yep, and there may or may not be muscadines uh, ripened at that time, but depending upon time. If you time come in there. August, <laughs> the dog days of summer is the best time to be out there. Yeah, I still it still makes me wonder. I, I would need to be sold on that one yet, but uh, <laughs> I'll get you out here. We'll do some swimming with the gators. It'll be all good. Yeah, that <laughs> I'm bold enough to try once, but. <laughs> Well, Jessica, thank you so much for sharing your uh, expertise with us and uh, for sharing some time talking about the these beautiful swamps and uh, your uh, your company taking people out on kayak tours. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
And now it's time for the Mississippi Minute. In the conversation I just had with Jessica, alligators came up a couple of times, so I thought we'd uh, dive into the world of alligators a little bit here in the Mississippi Minute. Alligators may be top predators, but we nearly wiped them out, so they needed a helping hand from us to recover. By the 1950s, excessive hunting and habitat destruction had dramatically reduced their numbers. So in 1967, the federal government listed them uh, as endangered through a program that preceded the Endangered Species Act. And state and uh, federal officials got together to limit hunting and uh, to begin to restore habitat. By the late 1980s, the alligator population had uh, nearly completely recovered. Uh, so we still hunt them today, but it's uh, the season is very limited and uh, there are caps on the number that can be killed. So generally they target the bigger ones, as Jessica mentioned during our interview. American alligators, they've been around a long time, uh, probably 80 to 100 million years. Uh, they're one of the last surviving relatives of dinosaurs. And they're cousins to crocodiles, although American alligators have a wider and rounder snout than crocodiles. And, of course, alligators are far less aggressive than crocs. Adult males, well, they get pretty big. Uh, generally, 11 to 15 feet is about uh, the top end of the range, and they can weigh up to about 1,000 pounds. Females are usually just a little bit smaller. Alligators live in swamps, rivers, and lakes uh, with a strong preference for freshwater habitats. And along the Mississippi River, they range as far north as central Mississippi and Arkansas. They have an extremely powerful bite, uh, strong enough to penetrate a turtle shell, but the 80 teeth that line their jaws are better suited for gripping than for shredding. On the other hand, the muscles that open and close their jaws are surprisingly weak. All it takes to clamp them shut is a strong grip or tape around the jaw. As top predators, alligators get to eat pretty much whatever they want. Turtles, mammals, especially muskrats and raccoons, birds, uh, non-native nutria also make for a, a popular meal. Sometimes gators will even snack on fruit like uh, elderberry or those muscadine grapes that Jessica mentioned. Uh, maybe they're just little palate cleansers for them. They've also been known to use lures to attract birds, uh, sometimes uh, putting together a pile of sticks or branches that tempt the, uh, the birds to come over who might be scavenging for materials to build a nest. Alligators hunt both in water and on land, and on land they can sprint as fast as 35 miles an hour, but only for quick bits as they tire very quickly. When the weather turns cold, they will dig into a bank or under a tree and slow their biologic functions, uh, and then they'll just kind of poke their snouts just above the waterline uh, to take in fresh air. As I said, you know, alligators are rarely aggressive, but, but if you push your luck, they will strike. Don't get too close, especially around the nest, and never, ever feed them. When you do, uh, it gradually loosens their natural wariness of humans and associates us with eating, which isn't a good thing. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the series on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss out on future episodes. I offer the podcast for free, but when you support the show with a few bucks through Patreon, you help keep the program going. Just go to patreon.com slash Klinkenberg. If you want to know more about the Mississippi River, check out my books. I write the Mississippi Valley Traveler guidebooks for people who want to get to know the Mississippi better. I also write the Frank Dodge Mystery Series that's set in places along the river. Find them wherever books are sold. The Mississippi Valley Traveler podcast is written and produced by me, Dean Klinkenberg. Original music by No Offense. See you next time.